welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome back to the Proper Mental Podcast. Welcome back if you've been here before. If this is your first time joining me, well then just welcome. Either way, thank you very much for listening. This is episode 79 and my guest this week is Dr. Rosalind Watts, who is a clinical psychologist and TED speaker and one of the most prominent voices and minds in the field of psychedelic research. She was the clinical lead on Imperial College London's depression study, which compared psilocybin which is the active compound found in magic mushrooms. They compared that with a standard antidepressant medication. And this is considered one of the most in-depth studies of psychedelics in the treatment of depression. There's a documentary about it on Netflix called Magic Medicine. The BBC did a show about it. I've put a link to that show in the episode notes. And the studies were kind of documented in different uh, media outlets all over the world, really. So much so that Dr. Watts was named as one of the 50 most influential people in psychedelics and in the top 16 women shaping the future of psychedelics. And it was awesome to chat to her about all that, really. We talked about, firstly, how she got into this line of work. We talked about the trials themselves, how they found people, how they screened people, how they made sure people were suitable, how it worked, how it was set up, what sort of support was offered. Uh, Ros takes me through the whole process from start to finish. And then we talk about the results. We talk about what came from the trial. And it was really cool to hear about both documentaries, the Netflix one and the BBC one, are really, really good. I found them really moving. I found watching the people have the experience and deal with all the things that they needed to deal with. I I found that quite intense. I found that very moving. And I also really loved the level of care and support that Ros and her team offered these people as they were going through this experience. It was it's just, just really lovely and really, really interesting. I'd highly recommend you give them both a watch. I mean, obviously, listen to this first and then go and give them both a watch. We chat about loads of other stuff as well. We talk about psychedelics in general, how they work, you know, where what is happening when someone takes a psychedelic and how that is good for mental health. We talk about mental health in general, environment, community, We talk about nature, that's a key feature of of Roz in her life and in her work. And we also talk about this community that she's the founder of, the ASA Integration Community, which are aiming to provide education and connectedness after psychedelic experiences. And she's using nature as a way of connecting people to themselves and to others. And it just sounds like a really lovely thing. And it was great to hear about that. We also talk about the future of psychedelics as a treatment for mental health and where that's at, where that conversation is at, what's happening with it. And what things could look like in the future. And I think this episode is, um, it was a favourite for me actually. I really enjoyed it. I'm always a little bit nervous every time I speak to someone who's like a psychologist or a doctor. I always assume that they're going to be much more intelligent than me and I'm going to struggle to keep up. Um, but Roz was lovely and we had such a nice chat and we got loads in common. I felt like some of our views around things like community and environment and nature were just really aligned. And we got on really well. She was absolutely lovely. Um, she cares deeply for her work and deeply for the people that are involved in it. And it was just, yeah, it was just amazing to get her take on it. One of the things we talk about is how 
in the mental health conversation, there needs to be something for everyone and that different people need different things at different times. And it felt really important to talk about that in this episode because, you know, due to politics and laws and lack of research and funding, psychedelics aren't available to everyone. And, you know, sounds like they should be, you know, sounds like we're missing a trick there. And it felt important to me um, to explore that and to put that out for people to listen to. If you'd like to know more about all this stuff, all the links are in the episode notes. You can follow Ros on social media at Dr. Rosalind Watts or at ASA Integration, or you can go to her website, drroslynwatts.com. I've also put the link to her TED Talk in the episode notes as well. If you enjoy this episode, if you kind of like the feel and the format of it, I'd also recommend going back a bit to episode 18 when I spoke to Dr. Poonam Krishnan, who's an NHS GP and a journalist. And you see it quite a lot on BBC on the morning programme. And we talked about standard medication. From a GP's perspective, we talk about the process of prescribing it and things like um, side effects and making the decision to stop taking medication and finding the one that works for you. And yeah, that was really, really interesting. That's a great episode. I'd highly recommend it. You could also check out episode 44 with Dr. Mike Banner, who is also an NHS GP. He's very well known in the fitness industry. And we talk a lot about that. We talk a lot about mental health from a GP's perspective, mental health versus mental illness and the language that we use. That's a really lovely episode as well. You could also go to episode 46 with Dr. Brendan Stubbs. And Brendan has published over 650 papers all about how physical activity has a positive impact on different aspects of mental health and mental illness. And we really drill down into all that. So rather than just saying like, oh, go for a run and do some yoga, it's great for mental health. We talked about what is happening in the body when we do these things, what is happening with your cells, with your physiology, and why it's so good for mental health. That's another fascinating episode. So if you like this one, you'll like them, go and check them out. While you're looking at all that stuff in the episode notes, there is a link to the voting for the Mental Health Blog Awards. This is the last time I'll mention this because voting closes next week. But if you want to go and click that link and vote for me, it takes seconds and it would be really appreciated. You don't have to register. You don't have to log on. None of that stuff. All the other bits about me are in the episode notes. I'm not going to list them because this has been quite a long intro so far. But go and have a look. And in the meantime, this is episode 79 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Dr. Rosalind Watts. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. I'm ready. I've got my matcha tea. I've got my sparkling cherry juice. And I've got my water. I've got all of my drinks. Everything you need. Yeah, be very well hydrated. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So I'll just do a, a, like a really, really quick intro and then we'll just mm-hmm. dive, dive straight in right. and go from there. Turn my phone off. Okay, ready. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And my guest this week is Dr. Rosalind Watts. How are you, mate? I'm good, thank you. Oh, super. Thank you so much for joining me, mate. It's, uh, it's lovely, lovely to meet you. I've been, um, I've been reading a few of your articles and watching the, the various bits on, on telly and TED Talks and stuff like that in preparation for today. But I suppose the, the best place for us to start would be with what is it exactly that you do? How do you describe it when other people ask you what your, what your job is? Oh, um, well, it's changed over the years because I think when I first started, so I work in, in psychedelic therapy, essentially. When I first started um, doing research with magic mushrooms for uh, as a treatment for people with depression 
which was like I think six years ago now um when I would describe it yeah I would kind of get a lot of raised eyebrows so I would just say I was a researcher you know like if, if the hairdresser asks you you know what do I just say I'm a researcher but these days I can say I'm a I'm a kind of yeah I'm a, a psychedelic psychologist I think is probably what I would say oh fantastic and um what was your route into this type of work? Because I'm going to make an assumption here, Ros, but it, I'd, I would guess that maybe this, um, you kind of ended up somewhere where maybe you didn't expect to when you started out on your uh, yeah. on your journey. Yeah, it's definitely an unconventional uh, way for a clinical psychologist to go. Um, so I started off, um, well, I had, an, I had an interest in magic mushrooms because magic mushrooms were legal for a time. So actually, when I was at university, my undergraduate degree was actually in English literature. And I lived in a student house in Birmingham. And the house, the, the flat was actually above a shop that sold magic mushrooms legally. There were just, it was a whole magic mushroom selling shop. Um, I don't know why they were legal. They were legal for a few years, some kind of strange loophole. And um, this shop had obviously taken that opportunity. And so I had, you know, I'd had these experiences in my 20s of I was never really that into drinking and instead of that had these kind of magic mushroom kind of yeah <clears throat> like sessions with my friends where we would um sit around and talk about our families and our vulnerabilities and like really go into our deepest places so I'd had that experience of living above that shop and I kind of had a memory that that was something that because of trying it in that way it was something that for me wasn't like oh dangerous bad you know or recreational it was this is something that you can take some of feel very strange not necessarily pleasant but it can open up your emotions so I had that kind of memory and then kind of forgot about it trained as a clinical psychologist and then yeah kind of stumbled back across it because the psychedelic research by that point had started up and there was this awareness that it had this therapeutic potential so it caught my eye when I was 33. Right yeah and was it the um the Imperial College trials were they like your first the first ones that you were involved in? Yes yes so I I lived near the Imperial College uh, clinic where they were doing the psilocybin for depression study and I was on maternity leave so I was a clinical psychologist but I was on maternity leave and um and whilst I was kind of breastfeeding, I had a lot of time to sit around and read articles. And I read this article about the Imperial College Psilocybin for Depression trial and contacted them and said, you know, do you need some, a volunteer? Um, and they said, yeah, we do. Come and come and help. So that's how it all started. Oh, fantastic. I was, I was thinking a lot about the, the trial process. And one thing I was really interested in is the, the screening process at the start, because mm. it, it, just to look at... Um, I think today we're probably going to have to talk in some quite broad terms, right? Yeah, um, yeah. You know, but um, so if we're just talking about depression in general, it's it must be so hard for people to kind of, a lot of people don't know the words to what they're experiencing. They don't know what's going on. They don't know the mm -hmm. whys. It's such a gray area. And I was yeah. thinking about from a trial perspective, obviously we need quite strict parameters to be able to look at the data, right? So how with the screening progress, process what sort of things would you be looking for in the instance of those trials like mm -hmm. what sort of people and how do we try and put something in a box that doesn't really fit in a box yes yes it's a very very good question and actually in a way is quite a kind of 
it is a clunky process and it's very much um it's it's kind of an attempt to try and put form around something that is so much more complicated and to simplify it for the purposes of the trial so what we would do we actually spent a really long time screening um, and that was because part of the screening is about does somebody um is it depression in that you know it's a it was a a medical trial it was in the the psychiatric department so we were using the like the diagnostic statistic manual criteria so we wanted to have everyone in the sample with the same official category label however you feel about those and i'm you know very unsure about them but that's how clinical trials work so it was the first kind of screening is when we were with uh, considering whether somebody could could take part is do they have depression is their depression serious or severe enough? And also, do they not have other things going on too? Because we tried to keep it simply kind of depression only. So that was the first part of screening. And then the second part of screening was all around suitability for psychedelic work, which was a totally different thing. Um, and that was all about how much somebody can form a trusting relationship with the therapist quickly and um, if they have a good support network for after the trial, that kind of thing. So there was actually loads of things we looked at. Yeah, sure. Was there a lot of people that came forward for it? Was there? Yeah, there were actually. The first, so I worked on two trials. The first one, um, less so. By the time of the second one, we had more interest. But what was interesting about the way the screening worked is we got through a huge number of people and actually were still sometimes struggling to find people to take part because we screened out like, like 95% of people. So we were really, we were really sele selecting a very, very specific group, group of people, which are people who have depression, not, not other things going on, have loads of support, are in a stable place, and really are in that place where they're able to trust and build that bond with someone. Yeah, sure. So because very niche. Yeah, yeah. But I suppose all those things are so important, aren't they? Because we kind of, I think sometimes in the conversation of psilocybin and magic mushrooms and stuff outside of the clinical environment mm -hmm. it's, it can be very much a case of you know people talk about just you know just whacking these things down with half a liter of cider or like homemade ceremonies and all the rest yeah. of it but i suppose in that therapeutic in the in the more scientific for the research purposes it is making sure that these people are are prepared for yes. what's going to happen yes. both before and after right Completely. Yeah. So after the screening, the preparation phase is really long. It's, you know, the screening is long. It takes weeks, you know, it starts off with a phone call, then there's a Zoom call, then there's an in-person meeting. That's just for the screening and then for the preparation. And there's also medical screening as well, checking to see if someone has a heart condition, things like that. Um, and then after that, there is um, the preparation, which is, again, a very long process, including one whole kind of half day in the clinic which is all about building that trust and really making sure that they are aware of how, basically the preparation is, the main thing is being prepared for how painful and difficult it can be and being really willing to work with that and know that that doesn't mean it's gone wrong, but that actually that's where the deepest learning can be. So that's what the preparation focuses on. Yeah, sure. I suppose with like when people are struggling with their mental health and 
they, you know, they're not quite sure about emotions and feelings and all these sorts of things. There's, there's an element of control that you have to have mm-hmm. to get through life, right? So whether it's because you're yes. suppressing stuff or you're pretending something's not happening, or that must be very difficult for people to sort of yes. to go with the process. That was my, from my own personal perspective, when I was mm-hmm. um, watching some of the documentaries and things, it's like, I don't know if I could let go because you, you can't, you can't resist once you're on that journey you're on it right once you've once you've taken the to the medicine yeah absolutely it's it's such an important point and I don't think it's discussed enough how hard it is to let go it's so it's I mean some people seem to find it relatively easy but there's a real spectrum with this but I mean it's such a challenging thing for many many people and yeah, in the trial, we had quite a few people that really weren't able to let go at all. And what what that means is kind of like, if you imagine it as like, so have you ever done abseiling? You know, abseiling when you kind of mm. climb backwards again. Yeah. So I once went abseiling as a teenager when I was like on some Duke of Edinburgh award thing. And I'm not very good at stuff like that at all. But I remember being at the top and being on the rope and like facing the rock and climbing down and I was absolutely petrified, so scared. I thought I was, you know, my whole being was, this is it, I'm dying. But I couldn't let go of the rope enough to do the whole thing where you kind of like jolt down and then you jolt down and then you hold on again. So instead I, I, I went down the whole way with my hands gripping the rope, like I couldn't let go at all. And I edged down at a snail's pace and everyone was waiting. And at the bottom, my hands were like ripped to shreds and bleeding. And I think that's a good analogy for what a psilocybin session can be like. If you can't let go, it can be really very hard and not very useful. And just like six hours of the rope grating at your hands. Yeah, yeah, sure. And it really, um, again, struck me from just like watching the the documentaries, but the the setup. So the environment that were people in. So you have that really long screening process, then the really long preparation process and then creating that really lovely safe environment and it really struck me how much how much work had gone into the amount of um the amount of care and the amount Mm. of support that was kind of wrapped around these these people all the way through Mm. yes yes absolutely because clinical trials don't always have that I think one of the things that I've learned since then is that well so we were a kind of small academic group doing it in a way quite kind of like on a bit of a shoestring um, there were no protocols in place. We were kind of making up. Well, we, there was a study protocol, but there were no broad scale kind of this is how psychedelic therapy is done protocols yet. So we were kind of we were we were creating something ourselves um, to be the way we thought it really needed to be to make sure people were kept safe. Um, and we we did it as a kind of labor of love. Like we put in many many hours above. You know, we were I was there at seven in the morning putting up the special lights so that the bathroom toilet lights went to you know, because there's a, a toilet attached. And when you went in, they had these like artificial lights that would automatically come on so that somebody could be in their experience knit to the loo and it was neon lights. So every morning we'd put these like gel colors over the loo light so that it was like dark and nice, like sea, sea like ocean colors when they went in. It's just little things like that, that we did and it took a lot of time. And I think, I don't think those things are always going to happen when it's rolled out by big, companies doing it so I think we will see that the, the effectiveness and the safety of this work it probably suffers when it goes when it's kind of rolled out on a main like large scale 
and it becomes a bit more like a kind of conveyor belt. Yeah, sure. I suppose there's always that that risk, and it's the funny thing yeah. about about hospitals and doctors and stuff. My um my daughter last year she broke her arm. She was only three at the time. She had a little fall and she broke her arm, and she had to have an operation. And so me and my wife were taking it in turns to sort of spend the time in the hospital with her. And I remember kind of like looking around and thinking, there's, there's nothing like healing about this environment at all. Mm. Like there's no natural light. There's no fresh air. The you know like it's uncomfortable to to sit in and. Um, yeah, I think it was, yeah, for, for me watching the the film again, it was really nice to see that, that environment. It was just, mm. um, just built for healing in, right? Yeah. Built for, for letting go. It's like when you walk into um, a really lovely yoga studio and there's just something yeah. in the air and you can just mm. feel that it's a, a nice, a nice place to be in. Um, yeah, that, that really came, came across. Yeah. Really, really came across. And so the, um, I kind of missed out this bit really, but it's probably quite important, but I suppose the, <laughs> the aim of the trial was to, um, compare the effectiveness, right, of psilocybin versus more commonplace antidepressants that get prescribed. Yeah, yeah. we were comparing the two. So the way the, the trial worked, so everybody had um, these two full days and they were three weeks apart with two therapists. We call them guides. And it's a, basically it's like a music meditation session. So people would sit for to, and this is what you have all the screening and the preparation for. This is the kind of the days that the, this is the treatment. Um, everybody would have these two full days where they'd sit with a playlist, put eye shades on, sit in this nice room that we'd made to feel really comfortable, like you say. And the instruction was really um, put the headphones on to listen to the music, put the eye shades on. We're here if you need us. But really, this is an opportunity for you to go inside and see what there is. And half the group had those two days on a placebo. Well, it wasn't, it was a one milligram psilocybin dose. So it was very subtle. Actually, a lot of them really felt it, but we thought it was going to be a placebo. It was meant to be a placebo. And in some ways it was. The other half of the group had um, a 25 milligram psilocybin uh, dose. So they were having an active psychedelic session in the same setting. So, so it was, that was the comparison. But the other thing was that the group that had the psilocybin microdose they were then given between the two sessions and for a bit afterwards, daily capsules of antidepressants. So for them, the active drug was antidepressants. And then the people that had had the active psilocybin dose, they were just given sugar pills for those days. Right, yeah. So they didn't know which condition they were in apart from the fact that, you know, 25 milligrams of psilocybin feels quite different to what, but not always sometimes not always yeah sure i'd imagine you could probably work it out quite quick if it <laughs> if it started to work do you know we couldn't work it out as much as we thought we were confused wow. a lot of the time yeah because the power of that room and the having the therapist there and the music and having all the care and attention that we gave for weeks and weeks beforehand and the intention that they'd formed and everything else that came into that room Many, many people with a one milligram psilocybin dose had really profound experiences. And some people in 25 milligrams didn't let go and didn't feel very much. Yeah, that's a fascinating point as well. And I suppose it just shows the, the power of the human mind and the role that we have. You yeah. know, like I think sometimes all the power gets given to to the medicine, the drug, whatever it is. Um, but like our role in that, you know, like I a couple of years ago, I'm in the process of um tapering off antidepressants at the moment and a couple of years ago when I started them I, I'd been very very poorly for a long time mm -hmm. and as soon as I started them they worked like as soon as they started like it was so and I I'm sort of 99% sure obviously anecdotally that that was much more of a 
placebo effect. I think I was desperate, yeah. desperate for help and someone helped me. And that, yeah. that was it. That was enough. Cause they worked far quicker than they were supposed yeah. to. Yeah. But like, I don't care because the results the same, right? Yes. But yeah. I think that's really fascinating how, you know, our own role in any sort of medication. Um, yeah. yeah. How that, how the brain, the brain plays into that. Right. And also the role of completely and, and the role of um, those taking care of us because yes, like you, somebody helped you, somebody gave you some tablets and that really met you finally um, that, you know, that's there. And I think in the same way as we've set up our kind of hospitals for lots of reasons, you know, our hospitals are busy places, they're fluorescent lights and there's no nature and there's no calming music. And there's, you know, we have set up our kind of care system in a way that um, it's an amazing care system. I love our national health service so much. And there are many things about it that I much prefer to the psychedelic uh, world, which isn't privatized and it's full of all sorts of other nonsense. NHS was a wonderful, wonderful place. I loved working there, but we didn't, there was never enough money and there was never enough time. And so we, we couldn't, or the NHS can't do all the stuff around the edges, which makes a room into like a yoga studio or makes a, makes a doctor have a bit more time to sit with you and everything is so risk-based and so kind of risk averse whereas in the psychedelic world none of those things really apply you can put the nice soft furnishings and have the nice music and it's not so risk averse because it's all done it's, it's not this great big sprawling organization that has to be constantly on the lookout for being sued it's much smaller and safer and you it's at the beginning of something so it's more creative as well as the NHS is kind of yeah it's much more risk defense based but I think I think it is about how like the placebo effect being so strong is so important. We don't use it enough. And I feel now after years of working in psychedelics that I'm almost more interested. I'm less interested in the actual psychedelic and much more interesting about when you build a container that's built for belonging and safety and care and compassion, what that brings out, not just in the people receiving it, but the people giving it, because it was such a joy to be able to have that sense of like human connection and care that I just think we're missing in our society. It's all packets of pills handed out on the quick and can this sort you out because you've got to get, you know, it's, there's too much pressure. So I think taking all of that pressure out and building something that's much slower and gentler is really important now. Yeah, definitely. And I, I think like a factor in why some people get, poorly in the first place is not having their very very basic human needs met right and not of course things like that get talked about a lot you know quality of food and exercise and all that sort of stuff but also that connection to other human beings that being able to connect on a deeper level and access these emotions that we get taught to bury down and and things like that so you can completely see why that's got to be a factor in the in the healing process, you know, from like my, my day job is I work in, um, in, in the rehab space and mm. quite often I get really, really positive results with clients and afterwards they're very grateful. And I think I didn't really do anything. I just listened, you know, like we just had a conversation. The actual physical work we did was not really kind of like based on anything. And it just goes to show when people can have that, have that connection, um, then things, things can change. So I love the idea. It was almost, I suppose it's like incorporating that stuff and the psilocybin and the research is like putting all these different things together. And there's just something really lovely about that. Right. Yeah, no, definitely. It's really, really hopeful. And I think, yeah, psychedelic, um, psychedelic therapy does, it does bring a chance to change our healthcare system because we can, 
psychedelics but by their very nature because they're so intense and they can be so overpowering and so frightening they they need lots of human care and connection to be in order for them to in the in the way they're given in order for them to not be really dangerous so i love the fact that as they come into our healthcare system they will bring with them the necessity of care and connection and if they're done without that then they will either not work or they'll be harmful so i think they'll change our system i really i really do yeah sure and uh, just doubling back to the the trial at the other end of it Mm. was there kind of like a, a an off-ramp or a, a debrief or how did people come out the other side because obviously that's such a big big thing and then you know we yeah. can't just sort of like wave people off and saying thanks for getting involved see you later well you know? that's yeah so that's kind of the way clinical research works it's kind of like you know it, there is that very much that kind of final endpoint, um because that's just the way trials run and getting psychedelic trials is kind of trying to fit psychedelic drug into the normal structure of a normal drug trial where you very much do just say goodbye at the end of it maybe you have you know you have a few follow-ups but there isn't very much more than that so this has been my whole this has been my whole focus because of the two trials that I worked on I had that feeling of we need people need to be they need more but not just do they need more they need a framework they need an actual framework for, for managing this because psychedelic experiences can be so strange and mysterious and you can be left feeling so confused and you just don't know and extremely open so if you have a kind of framework to work with that then you can use all that openness in a way that f- makes sense whereas if you're just kind of left on your own devices to make sense of it often you can you can feel quite overwhelmed but the uh, the main factor that I thought was important was doing it in community because in the first trial we had 20 people it was a really small trial the first one 20 people with treatment resistant depression. They took part in this study. It was still very early in psychedelic research. Nobody they knew in their lives took psychedelics. Their doctors said, what on earth are you doing? You know, their partners often said, I don't, I don't think this is right. They have a lot of suspicion around, around it. And then they really wanted to meet each other because there were these other 19 people who'd done the same thing. So we had a kind of Christmas party at the end and they met each other and, and that was like, it was a really amazing thing to see these friendships form and know that people were swapping numbers and staying in touch. And then when the second trial finished, COVID happened. So all of that connecty stuff at the end and actually the last few people's integration sessions, because we call it integration afterwards, that's the follow-up phase. And they have a few sessions after the trial as part of the clinical trial, because you couldn't give them nothing. Like, yeah, you, you have to give some, a few sessions. Um, but because in COVID we couldn't do the connection stuff, um, myself and my colleague Michelle Baker Jones, we started a Zoom group for people that had been in the trial and just said, look, if you've been in the trial and it's COVID and you're struggling a bit and you need integration, you need to meet the other people to support each other. We're going to do this on a Monday. Come and jo- and share. And it was it was such a lovely, lovely thing. And they, they're still going now, actually. They still they still meet, which is like two years later. Oh, wow. That's lovely, isn't it? That's yeah. really, really nice. Yeah. I suppose like when you struggle with your mental health, it's so people feel so lonely and so disconnected from other people. And yeah. then we know that these different groups that are out there that bring people together really helps, you know, really helps mm. to, to connect them. And I, yeah, the I suppose connecting through the healing process is no yeah. no different at all right yeah. all, all coming together and uh, and connecting yeah. yeah yeah that sounds really really lovely yeah so what was the um 
what was kind of the outcome from these these trials then um in a nutshell you know how did mm. the how did the the evidence pan out so broadly um well so in the first trial um we found that um so to put it in terms of kind of like the outcomes from the 20 people um so 11 people had what i now see as kind of like the standard out like response like the most common response it's like a kind of bell curve like the the, the middle response is um a couple of months anything from kind of like a month to three months of feeling that if if many of them describe depression as feeling like a kind of prison and whether it was grayness or heaviness or tinniness or just numbness some kind of flat oppressive feeling that felt like a prison in some way and they described that for the first kind of couple of you know from like a one or two or three months that prison opening up they felt connected to the world around them connected to other people connected to nature particularly connected to nature and just connected to I think connected to having a sense that they were part of it of an interconnected web of life and that they were that they were what's the word not that they were great not that they were loved just like a, a comfortable sense of belonging in the world and of being okay not always feeling happy but really feeling a bit more at peace and a bit more open and spacious and then after a, about three months two or three months that feeling would start to close down again. So the, the expansion would start to contract. So that was 11 of the 12, of the 20. Then three people didn't have any response at all, no, no benefit to their depression. And then six people had a longer response. So for six people, they, when we did the follow-up at six months, they were still feeling not depressed. And then from my communications with people afterwards, I don't know of anyone that it lasted much longer than the six months, maybe one or two a year. But then people did go on to use psychedelics in retreats and things like that. So it's difficult to pass out what was what was what. Um, and then the second trial we did, um, the two groups, the, the antidepressant group and the psilocybin group, their results were not significantly different both groups showed really significant reductions in depression amazing results both groups and for me that wasn't about the anti. I mean maybe the anti oh, I'm sure the antidepressants played their, their part but people in our trial most of them had tried antidepressants many times and that they weren't providing them with the treatment that was effective which is why they participated obviously they're very effective for lots of people but for the people that sign up for a psychedelic trial they were like they, they weren't doing it for the fun they were doing it because they tried other things that hadn't worked so um so I think when I think about all those people in the antidepressant group and I think about you know what was it that that meant that they their depression really came down I think it was the container the sense of being heard a bit like you say with the people that you work with in in uh, rehab it's having someone really because we were there with people for two whole days listening to their whole life stories and really caring you know really really caring so yeah, yeah. I mean uh, <clears throat> excuse me that makes so much sense to me because how you kind of described what people were feeling then is the opposite to how people would describe feeling depressed 
Mm. You, you know that it's a sense of being disconnected it's a sense of low self-worth of not feeling good enough or part of anything or all these things and so it makes you know that's yeah that makes perfect sense that that's that's how yeah. it how it feels and I kind of I, what I think about the mental health conversation is that it's all about having so many different options because different people need different things isn't it and i think the conversation around psychedelics rather than it's just it just could be a very very useful wonderful tool that is available if people so wish right so it's not trying to get rid of everything else it's just another thing and so if you look at like support groups some people work very well it's sitting in a circle talking about their feelings some people need to take a dog for a walk some people need to go yes. and like build something in a shed like everyone responds differently to different things and i think yes. the more options we can have available the more mm. that people who are struggling are just likely to find that thing that's going to like help them to not struggle so much right yeah completely i think that's a, such a good way of looking at it and they're definitely not a panacea and they i think they're, they're they probably will end up i think when we look back only really being i think there will be a I don't think they will be universally helpful. For, I think they will, for some people, they will bring up problems. They will be disruptive. Some people, they will make them feel worse than they did before. And so, yeah, lots of real careful screening and thinking about it. But yeah, I think for some people, they will offer a really nice alternative to other, other things. And they can be used in combination as well. You know, I think there'll be lots of interesting, creative ways of, you know, you mentioned taking the dog for the walk or building something. But I think they'll... We'll be able to really, you know, as we learn more and more about the non-medical approaches, the community-based, the social, nature-based, we can really start to weave together ways of creating spaces where people can, yeah, there's a whole like, well wellness trend, <clears throat> but like, you know, what do we need to be humans? What, how do we find that sense of belonging? And how can we create spaces that make people feel, yeah, the connection? Yeah, sure. How can we beat those basic needs? Um, but yeah. yeah, more, more naturally and more, uh, yeah, more, more easily, I suppose. Yeah. yeah, definitely. I've been, um, I wanted to ask this question and I've been trying to think, I don't like asking big questions, right? Because <laughs> I kind of think it, it just it gets too complicated, but I can't think of a way to break this down or get into it, but so I'm just going to go for it and we'll see what comes out. But, yeah. um, how does psilocybin work? What's <laughs> going on when, um, when people take that, take that medicine? So we're still learning and we don't know. We might, in a way, we might never know because there are so many different ways of understanding it. Think, not even understanding it, but thinking about it or like so many different frameworks. So if you ask the shaman that gives people ayahuasca, which works in a very similar, from, from the Western like medical perspective, like scientific neuroscience perspective, ayahuasca and psilocybin work in a very similar way in the brain. So ayahuasca is a, a vine, it's got quite popular, it works in a similar way to magic mushrooms, drink it in Peru, it's in a ceremonial context. So, and it's given by shamans and shamanic facilitators to people to drink in a circle in a group. If you ask a shaman, how is the ayahuasca working? They will have a very, very different way of explaining it. So they have a spiritual understanding and some of the shamans work that they drink the ayahuasca and that the person, the participant, the, 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 the person that wants the healing doesn't drink it. So it's not actually about drinking it themselves. The shaman drinks it and allows them to understand the spiritual blockages or what's happening with that person or if they've had some 
bad spells or curses put on them and then they can remove them if somebody's got dark spirits inside them they will they will pull them out so that that's the way a shaman will will understand it and and if you ask a neuroscientist they will say oh well you know if you look at the brain that what's happening is that psychedelics um deactivate the default default mode network so it's essentially your brain's kind of day-to-day normal default functioning is keeping you safe so it's managing all the stimuli around you and it's managing that so that you can cross the road without getting hit by a car or you can you can go about your day and what that feels like to us is a kind of inner monologue of our kind of inner kind of sergeant major telling us don't do that you'll get that wrong don't do you know it's kind of constant we most of us have a kind of pretty constant flow of it ranges from mildly kind of cautious uh advice to full out bullying self-attack self-criticism but we have that constant monologue of like do the what we should be doing psychedelics kind of um they deactivate the parts of the brain that are responsible for that kind of rumination, that ego, ego chatter, and allow the brain, all the different parts of the brain, to, when, the, when that control mechanism is down, it allows all the different parts of the brain to talk to each other. So in a way, it's allowing you to go deeper than that day-to-day functioning of just keeping you alive. And you can go deeper into what some people... So then we're coming a bit out of the neuroscience perspective, thinking a bit about what a therapist might say so I'm a I'm a psychologist the way I understand it is that in a way it's a kind of combination of those other two understandings that when the default mode network is down when that part of our brain that keeps us in the constant chatter of the day-to-day shuts up for a bit we go into our where you know where do we go we go into trapped emotions we go into trauma that's been stored away in our bodies that we haven't yet processed and we go to all sorts of places, some of which I really don't understand are very mysterious. And sometimes I think that maybe the shaman, you know, we need the shaman to be in the room with us and talk it through because actually um, one of the participants in my, in the the clinical, the second trial, um, he had an experience where he, and this is kind of quite common. This is just one example, but the the kind of thing that happens, it's way beyond our Western understanding of, you know, mental health. He, um, he became his grandfather. So he was he was in his session. He became his grandfather as a child. Was he as a child? No, he wasn't. He was as an adult, but he had a baby daughter, which was my participant's mother. And he was at sea and he was drowning at sea. And as he was drowning, he was aware that his little baby daughter at home was, was losing her father. So he went into the body of his grandfather and said he had a completely lifelike visceral experience of being his grandfather and knowing all these things that he couldn't have known. And afterwards, he was really shocked by it because it wasn't just thinking about his grandfather. He didn't even know some of these details, but he had this absolute visceral knowledge that he had he had been his grandfather. So mysterious things happen all the time. So. I guess in a way, the one way of describing it is just, you know, it silences our egos enough so that we can go to all sorts of places, emotional, spiritual, mystical, sometimes, sometimes just biographical. And, and we still have very little understanding. Of, and, and often people go back to the womb. So often people go back to their womb as a baby or they experience their own birth. Um, this happens so frequently. Um, and of course, it might just be like imagination, but. I've experienced it myself and it really doesn't feel like it feels like it's an embodied 
memory of something. So it's very interesting and very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, both at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I suppose that's why there's so much um just like misunderstanding and, and stigma in a way about about the use of of psilocybin and and any sort of uh any sort of a drug like that, you know. I've always I was thinking before that I kind of I was a teenager in the in the nineties and um so it was really big around that time with uh, particularly with like ecstasy and um like Leah Betts. I remember I didn't even read the paper or watch the news, but I remember that being on all the front pages and the hospital pictures and and all that sort of stuff. And it's kind of like ingrained in us, isn't it, to think of any sort of anything that's not um you know not the norm to be um mm -hmm. to be scary and harmful and um so i suppose that's a, a big barrier to to overcome isn't it particularly if we can't can't quite express what it is that's that's um that's happening that yes. must be a big challenge in your work Roz. it is it is <laughs> excuse me yeah it is challenging because i think um well yeah i mean in a way it is challenging but it's also really there's something very humbling about that too, because I think if we did understand everything about it, if there was no kind of mystery, then I think it would allow things, well, I think they are still moving quite quickly as it gets kind of mainstreamed in preparation for it becoming legalized. And also just in you know, medical, so getting licensed as a medical treatment, even if it's not legalized for everybody. Um, I think there is something about the fact that we don't understand it that and the caution that comes from those things, I mean, I remember the Leah Betts thing too, and it was just, you know, it was, I think they faked the, the studies as well. There were some studies and they faked the data. Um, but but in a way, there's been a kind of swing in the other direction now and going from that time of like drug, you know, ecstasy is, is going to kill you and it's terrible and you mustn't think of doing this or you're a reprobate. So then suddenly it's like, oh, ecstasy is a treatment for PTSD and it's wonderful and it's going to cure the world's ills and magic mushrooms are going to cure the world. And it's like, I think there's something inherent in the fact that it's like, well, maybe, but there's something very, very mysterious about the way they work, that it calls us back into that place of actually somewhere in the middle of those two extremes saying, hmm, interesting, very strong, very powerful, work for some, won't work for others. Let's be incredibly cautious, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a, uh, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cause people really go through it. And I, I was quite interested to ask from your perspective of spending time with people having these, these massive emotional releases and the, the, you know, processing some really sort of stuff that they might not even known that they needed to process, but we pick up other people's stuff, right? So if you've spent a day helping someone through that, and then like you finish work and you've got to go home and like be mum and cook the tea. And that must yeah. be, you know, yeah. that must be quite, um, quite intense for yourself. Did you have to keep an eye on your own state of mind while, you know, while doing the work that you do? Yeah, it's such an important, important question. And yeah, thank you for asking it. I actually, oh my goodness. So we didn't, we actually found, we found a supervisor separately. So um, a clinical psychiatrist actually approached me at a conference a few years previously and I'd kind of said I you know our team's going to need like support and supervision and all those things so he actually came to work with us for free for the for the whole for, for the second trial but actually in the clinical trial setup as it was there was there was no even provision for supervision like let alone our own kind of therapy there was no supervision written in so like I think because it's this model of like it's a clinical scientific study and we're looking at people's brains it's like why do you need any supervision 
So it's just that shift of thinking of it from a neuroscience intervention to it. This is therapy. And like you say, this is therapy that is so long. It's a whole day. It goes so deep. It's so much more complex than any therapy I'd ever worked in before. So I think as this expands, teams are going to need so much more support and so much more uh, to go much more slowly than we did. We went for we I sometimes saw two different people in a week. So I'd be prepping someone on a Monday all day, Tuesday, integrating Wednesday morning, have a quick bite to eat. I go straight to the next person to do a prep session on the Wednesday afternoon psilocybin all day Thursday Friday integrate and then like drag myself home to as you say make the tea and do bedtime so I think I yeah there is so much more need for going slower and I think I mean I actually did have therapy like towards the end of the trial I wished I'd had it all the way through because yeah like it's it's partly kind of like what you pick up but just also the intensity and the exhaustion of being present for somebody for six hours and how the toll that takes the toll that takes on you when you do it every week for a year and a half it's like that's it's not healthy yeah that's you know yeah that's that's heavy that was my kind of overall feeling of all of it really mm. everything I watched I was thinking about from every perspective this is really yeah. uh, this <laughs> is heavy. Just heavy, right? And yeah. um, sometimes when people were first like going in, I I, I felt a bit nervous on their behalf, yeah. you know, like mm-hmm. just from just from just from uh, just from watching it. Yeah, it was um, it's a very, I don't know. I suppose it's a very special thing to to witness as well, as well as being challenging for yourself. It must be um, yeah, it must be yeah, like a, a real a real privilege, I suppose, to to be a part of that that healing process because it's very it's very human that's what came across to me from all of it and I say this about struggling with mental ill health as well is that being poorly is also it's a it's a very human experience you Mm. know it's a a different level of of connection to watch that watch that trauma trauma come out yeah yeah Um, Uh, no I like that I like that's an interesting way of thinking about it that yeah it's incredibly human and I agree it really is um one of the one of the analogies I use for integration so I'm because of the heaviness of this work and because of the intensity, I'm working a lot now on providing a kind of container structure, community structure. It's a year long community for people to kind of wrap around psychedelic experiences or just any experiences of like bigness, heaviness in life so that they have a bit more kind of gentleness and support in the months before the months after. And the analogy I use a lot is of trees. And we do lots of meditations where we're kind of becoming trees, where you're grounding down into your roots and feeling the solidity of your tree trunk, which is like your body and feeling that sense of, of growth and turning the mud at the roots into the, the sap, the stuff that makes the, the, the leaves grow, that sense of, um, we call it psychological photosynthesis. And I think the reason I love the trees so much is because they're incredibly grounding and anchored. And I think, like you say, like when we're struggling with, with whatever it is we're going through a difficult time we're struggling with our mental health we're doing a having a a psilocybin experience that's really hard or just a big life event like a bereavement or something the 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 human humanity and the pain of that humanity can sometimes be so overwhelming that actually sometimes we need ways of of kind of almost balancing that intense humanness acknowledging it and feeling it but also balancing it with with nature because when we remember that actually we are us humans with our you know ruminating minds and constant self-criticism and 
all of that that it does make us so human it's what makes us different from trees they don't they don't do that to themselves but when we realize that we are part of this interconnected web and that humans are just one part and that all of our other kind of counterparts you know they're living and breathing and they're part of a web and they're in harmony and actually sometimes you I find those those metaphors incredibly soothing and calming when my own humanity just feels a little bit too much yeah very much so yeah you kind of um like my kids are still quite small and you kind of see the more natural human the closer to design in them mm. and then my son just started school last year and you see society creeping in and you can almost you can watch the watch the change you know but the idea of anything is adults that we can kind of get closer back to that that natural yeah. state you know you know and, and nature's fantastic for that and that's something we've only like i think obviously people have been aware of it for a long time but in the more mainstream that's only like something people are just kind of getting on now you know isn't it that nature how powerful it is and how we are part of it and i wanted to ask you about your own connection to nature ros because in mm -hmm. um everywhere i looked to do some research on you there was always just that link to um to the to the natural world mm -hmm. has that always been something you've just been um that's been important to you and connected to you well it's it's funny in a way because just like it growing up it wasn't really like i when i when i was a teenager we used to go to shopping centers for our weekends what we'd hang out I remember like the local Queensgate shopping center we'd hang out in these like plasticky glass almost like forests they were so massive and that's just where we'd be and I would I went from my kind of like house on a you know stone street like brick street to school didn't really do any time in nature and then yeah hanging out in the shopping center but then and I remember like if I, you know, if like my family were going on a walk somewhere, I'd like, you know, I kind of drag my heels and say I didn't want to go and I wanted to watch telly instead, that kind of thing. But then it was, it, it was for me as a bit of a cliche, but it was psychedelic experiences that opened up that nature connection and really feeling innately part of nature and seeing the absolute, like, seeing the, the incredible power and beauty of nature meant that the next time I went into nature I had a completely different relationship with it and actually um one of my great friends he's a, a researcher as well his family have just they've kind of created a, a wildlife kind of nature reserve it's not that far out of London because I live in I'm still in a very built-up area of London so my daughter and I it's my daughter's godfather actually we we spend quite a lot of time in those trees by their lake with their animals they've always got millions of different animals and they've got birds walking all around the house and it's this kind of real natural amazing environment and through my collaboration with him we wrote some papers on psychedelics and nature together and through my my friendship with him and collaboration with him and his mum who's a she's an artist but she's essentially like a real true nature visionary and actually she had lots of mushroom experiences in Wales when she was young so it's come from her psychedelic experience this whole legacy of um, this kind of lineage of like absolute falling in love with nature so I, I think now I have like officially fallen in love with nature <laughs> <laughs> and you know it's fantastic that people can um, like go on like these trials and have these experiences and get that for themselves because something yeah. else that I was really one of my favorite sayings um, and I don't know who said it I wish it was me it's not me um, but it's you can't heal in the same environment that made you sick and I love that and that's something that really jumped out to me 
um, watching particularly the Netflix documentary is that a lot of people will come in having these amazing experiences part of the trial, really seem to be getting some benefit from it, but then going straight back to the lives that they were living. Now, obviously, when it comes to mental health, when it comes to depression, there's a million and one reasons why people people suffer, of course. But for a lot of people, it's very much environmental. And I think, I suppose that's a, that's something else. Is that something else that from your perspective that you have to think about is that you kind of, you know, people are essentially for want of a a better term, kind of waking up almost, but then Mm. like plonking back down to a lot of the same factors that probably helped to get them poorly in the first place. Completely, completely. And sometimes it's, it's hard because there's this idea of like, oh, if I could just be somewhere else, it would be helpful. But sometimes, you know, we're, we're bound by, we're bound by practicalities and we can't go and live in a beautiful place in nature we have to stay living where we are but one of the things that the um the community that i the integration process that i'm doing one of the 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 purposes of that is that it's based around 12 trees so every month there's a different tree and each month has a different learning a different lesson and it's all based around integration and connection and psychological flexibility and things like that and when you've been around the cycle so you've been through it all the trees and it's all like sharing circles and meditations and and stuff like that when you get to the end um we will invite people to take all the materials that we've created and set up a local group so what that really means is like so so i'm going to do one so i'm desperate to live in the countryside but i kind of can't right now because of my daughter's school and things like that so i'm going to set up a 12 trees group in the local town hall in this part of london i'm in which will be opposed to saying on wednesday come and do the apple tree meditation and even if like two people come, it doesn't matter because it's I'm creating a little garden in the place where I live, where I'm making a little space for tree meditation and, you know, sharing circle and that kind of thing. So the reason I built that into the program is so that when people have had a, an experience, whether it's psychedelics or anything that's opened them up and they've been through this cycle of these 12 trees. So like how can you create a little garden, like a metaphorical garden where you are, where you can create that different environment to heal in because even if it's just once a month on a Wednesday from four till six and you've got three people there, you're still planting those seeds of making a space where people can connect heart to heart, where it's not about pretending to be great, where you can talk about your real feelings and you can connect with nature at the same time. Yeah, I, I just love the idea of doing that, starting small in the local community. You know, yeah. that's, that's really how we like connect and change in there. I always think the mental health conversation is great that there's so much awareness. It's great that everyone's talking, but it's so big. It almost doesn't mean anything, yes. you know, yeah. and, but by, by focusing on your own sphere of influence, the, the people, the things that are around you, then that's that you can really make um, positive, uh, positive change. Is that the, the ACER integration? Is that the, ACER, what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. what does that, that stands for? That's an acronym, right? Yeah. So, well, ACER is a type of tree, but yes, it, uh, so which was, yeah, which is kind of why it was ACER, but it stands for accept, connect, embody, restore. Wow. And that's, um, that's all on your, your website and stuff like that, Ros, is it? If yeah, people yeah, want yeah. to, um, want to, yes. want to look it up. And oh, actually we, we have a launch event next Friday, which is, uh, in, in person in London, actual real in-person gathering. Wow. And they'll be dancing and they'll be singing and there's, it's going to be like a real celebration kind of evening in Hackney, but then it's also going to be live streamed online as well. Oh, wow. That sounds wonderful. And will there be more things like that coming up uh, in the future? Is that yes. the plan? Yeah, yeah, there'll be. We'll, we'll try and have quite a lot. Yeah, I think there's something really about community gatherings that we and actually getting together that we really, we really need after COVID, don't we? 
Yeah, definitely. I think we need to get them going quick as well, right? Because yeah. when, when we all got into that big lockdown and everyone had these like life-changing moments and was going to do anything differently and things started again so quick, we've all kind of forgotten, you know? I know. I think someone needs, I've said it a lot on this podcast, someone needs to write a book called like Lessons from Lockdown and just kind of like <laughs> re- remind us all of all these <laughs> all these things that we were going to do. So yeah, the quicker we yeah. can get these things up, up and running before people for, forget the message, which I suppose is a bit of a metaphor for um, coming off a psilocybin trial, right? You can, yes. The sooner we can start working on the on the learnings, then uh, the more yes. likely they are to to stick around. Yeah. So if Absolutely. that's what, um, if what you've got um, coming up, just for the bigger uh, picture of psychedelics, um, mm. you know, and the research and things like that, is that moving towards being, you know, legalized and being a bit more standard practice? Yeah. So there's some interesting things going on. Um, so there is, um, oh, there's so many different things happening. Um, so politically, there is something called the Conservative Party Drug Reform Group. I think CPRDG, something like that, Conservative, yeah, Conservative Drug Reform Group. And they are looking at, they're interested in, yeah, changing drug policy and psilocybin being decriminalized so it can be researched more easily. So that's something that's quite positive. Um, there are more and more clinical trials happening now, um, various different companies making psilocybin and doing clinical trials, and not just psilocybin, but also other kind of. Um, other psychedelics like DMT, 5-MeO-DMT. I mean, there's so many different ones that are being studied at the moment. And yeah, I think who knows in terms of, how, you know, politically like where it will go. But in America, it's moving very quickly. So the state of Oregon and lots of um, lots of other, what's it called? It's not so like they've, they've got particular like cities, but also lot, the state of Oregon that have decriminalized um psychedelics so psychedelic therapy is about to start being legally available in Oregon quite soon wow that's wonderful yeah that's really cool I I'm a big fan of um of talking about the future because I think it's really easy to get lost in these conversations about how there's not enough money and the waiting list is too too long and I think it's like a really positive thing to say well Mm. okay that's the case it's not going to change any time soon but what could be happening or yeah. you know, what, is, what is out there? What are people doing? I just think that's so much more, um, it's so much uh, beneficial, but um, mm. oh, mate, thank you so much for your time today, Roz. I've enjoyed that yeah. immensely. I think I've, um, I've made more notes in preparation for this than I have any <laughs> other episodes. Aww. And you know what? We did get like, <laughs> I could, I could keep going and going and going, but um, yeah, I, that's, that's given me plenty to chew on. And thank you so much for your time today, mate. I really, thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it as well. Thank you for listening from the proper mental podcast please like and subscribe the space star